This is games in schools and libraries. The podcast about board, card and digital games and the ways in which they can find a place in schools or at the local library. Hosting provided by the Games for Educators website www.g4ed.com Welcome to Games in Schools and Libraries. My name is Giles Pritchard. I'm a teacher at St George's Road Primary School in Shepparton, Australia. I use games in my 3-4 classroom as well as for our games club, our games days and many other purposes. You can also find me on my blog, castlebymoonlight.blogspot.com or on Twitter as P. And my name is Donald Dennis. I'm the Young Adults Games and Technology Librarian for the Georgetown South Carolina Library System, where I provide technology and gaming programming, including games days and tournaments, and other game activities like Game Design Group. And I'm the producer of the On Board Games podcast, which you can find on boardgames.net. And uh, you can find me as On Board Games on Twitter. Very good. And how are you travelling, Don? You know, I'm travelling much better. I guess uh, by the time that this episode comes out, we'll be several months past my surgery and past my knee trauma. I'll probably even be out of therapy by then. So, hurrah, hurrah. Fantastic. And that's all all going well? That's all going great, at least at the time of this recording. Um, No complaints whatsoever. Uh, Game-wise, I've had a wonderful uh, plethora of games come to me that aren't even released yet. Uh, the New Sciences game that I played recently, which you play uh, the various scientists from you know the Age of Reason, of course, when people are learning about science. Um, and uh, you, know, you can be a Darwin or a Galileo, or I guess not all the scientists are contemporaries from each other. Um, in fact, I think they're even going to have an Einstein card where you could you know be Einstein. But you're studying to research, uh, experiment, and publish in various different fields of science, like mathematics, physics, astronomy, um, and so forth. And it is a blast of a game. If you go and check the Onboard Games episode 91, uh, which will be a little old and dusty by the time this one comes out, you'll get to hear my preview uh, on that episode. So give that a check out if it sounds like something that interests you. Oh, that sounds fantastic. So what else has been happening games-wise, Don? Ooh, most exciting thing um, is that I just last Friday, um, I'm sorry, no, last Thursday, I went to a games and libraries conference here in South Carolina where the state library had in librarians from all over the state, and we talked about games and libraries. One of the local conventions um, sent a representative who is also a librarian, and she talked to... Uh, a bunch of librarians who don't really know games very well about uh, a wide variety of games and we had some other fine presenters Mm -hmm. uh, who did a great job at sort of you know just offering some information so i'm hoping that they can do this yearly where they have folks in and talk about that Uh, previously they've done stuff on like small business centers and libraries and those kinds of things so it's great that south carolina because they've had so much grant money come into state and county libraries regarding games that they're able to do this kind of program to support all the librarians who are trying to bring in more patrons and show the relevance of libraries in modern day. 
Fantastic. So what's what's the upshot of something like that, Donna? They talk about uh, digital games. Uh, what sort of platforms are they looking at? Was it board games, card games? Uh, you know, what, what sort of thing were, was being discussed? Well, kind of like our podcast, they did uh, everything. So around the room, there were digital games of all sorts, including old classic Pac-Man, and they had uh, 360 and Kinect and Wii, and I, I didn't see a PlayStation Move there, but you can't have anything, I guess. Um, <laughs> but there uh, uh, There were rumors that it was there was one somewhere. Um, but, uh, it was always on the move. Always. Um, and uh, then on the tables, they had a bunch of game activities uh, that you know the people could pick up and play and stuff. But uh, after the uh, presenter from the Scarab Convention uh, gave her presentation, that uh, and we had our lunch break, then some of us broke off and actually played some board games, and I uh, demoed uh, Dixit, and there was a couple of other games that were being demoed too, and I didn't even get to see them because I was so busy showing off my own game, which the librarians love because the pictures, you know, the kinds of things that draw people over and people are getting real excited about it. So um, if you are familiar with the Apples to Apples or... Oh, what else is Dixit like? It's one of those games that sort of stands alone. In fact, it serves as a perfect segue, Don. I don't know whether you intended this into our topic for this episode, which is games and art. Um, Dixit is a game where you've got a set of different... Uh, every card in the, in the game is different. Um, there's no text on any of the cards. They are just beautiful pieces of art. They're almost surreal, aren't they? They are, um, and you know when there's an expansion even out for it, and the art on it is a, a little less general. So, but um, you know, gives you more of a specific idea of the kinds of things that you're doing. But in Dixit, what happens is if you're the judge, you person, then you're going, well, not if you're a judge, but if it's your turn, you're going to look at your hand of cards, and you'll pick one of those, and from that card, you're going to give sort of a description, and. Uh, the description that you give, you lay it, you lay that card face down. Then everybody picks from their hand of cards ones that they hope other people will confuse with your description, and then uh, they get mixed up, flipped over, and everybody tries to guess which one was your card. If everybody guesses which one is your card, obviously you made your clue too clear, and um, it was too easy, so you don't get any points, but everybody else gets some points. But on the other hand, if just some of the people get your card, then all of a sudden they get the people who guessed it get points, and you get points. But the people who um, picked cards that were confused for yours will also get points, and the folks who picked wrong and whose cards weren't picked, they're not getting any points. So that probably didn't make a lot of sense the way I said it because I've had too many cups of tea this morning already. <laughs> um, I think the the basic idea is you're giving a clue and trying to make the cue, the clue clear enough that some people are going to guess which card is yours, which piece of art you're alluding to, um, and yet uh, obscure enough that you're going to confuse just enough people so that uh, you still score points. Because as you said, Don, if everybody guesses your card, you've, you've been too specific. Right. And now playing this game, 
um, gets people to look at the art, gets people to consider the various elements of the art. And in some cases, if you're playing with kids, you're going to get lots of references to fairy tales or movies or stories that they're familiar with. And if you're playing it with adults, especially adults who maybe know each other and have, and have hung out together, you might get strange one-word references that, like someone might say, Vox, which could mean voice if people know their Latin, or if everybody has played EverQuest, or one of your buddies has played EverQuest, you'll know is a white dragon. So it could be that you have a white dragon on your card, but only the people who played this game that you played are going to know that that's the card you're talking about. So it's, you know, it's a way of communicating, of, of building some communication skills, but it's also a way of helping people contemplate art without necessarily doing so in the traditional um, art studies sort of fashion. Yeah, and I think one of the one of the fantastic things about it is it's so easy just to, to twist the rules a little bit. Um, you could, for example, say for a round or for the length of the game that the clues all have to be related to books or they all have to be related to music or movies or uh, artists or artworks. Um, and, and in that way, you can really make people think very carefully about the clues that they're giving in relation to that restriction of my clue has got to relate to a movie of some sort and, and obviously also has to relate to the card I'm laying out. So that there are a lot of really easy ways of modifying the game to just, just add a little twist, a, a hint of, of lemon and lime to change the game up a little bit um, from play to play. One of the one of the things I've found playing with with adults is that sometimes Don, it's a little bit easy to game. Um, you know, if there are a handful of people that know them know each other well, uh, they can give clues that they know that other person, you know, who's shared a particular life experience, perhaps is going to get, and that nobody around the table is going to get. Um, I've only had a little bit of experience with people doing that, but. You know, it, it all comes down, I guess, to, to making sure everybody plays a game fairly and, and within the right spirit. And the, and the spirit of the game is really to be laying out, uh, you know, these cards and giving some obscure clues and having a bit of fun, which is what game, games are all about, really, having a bit of fun. So Abs- absolutely. I, I really like the game. I would say the inside knowledge thing doesn't happen every time, every game for a player. It might be, you know, one time or twice uh, mm-hmm. for me giving clues out of the entire game. It's not something that's going to happen all the time. And the rules are very vague on what kind of clues that you can give. So say if you were doing a drama class, you know, or an acting class where you're teaching people how to act, it could be that you could say, all right, you have to give a clue without saying a word, you know, yeah. or, or, or whatever, uh, you know, or play a piece of music that, uh, you know, if you're in a music class, that, that represents the card or something like that. So you've got a wide variety of ways that you can limit the, the types of expression. And that's brilliant. I hadn't even thought of that before, but good job, Giles. I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> that's my one and only time that I'll uh, manage that, Don. But uh, it yeah, really yeah. is a beautiful game. And the card artworks um, really are very, very nice. They're, they're these beautiful sort of surreal um, uh, cards, uh, large, nice, good-sized, good-quality cards. Um, and, and, yeah, just a, it's a really nice game. So for those who didn't hear us name the game earlier, it's called Dixit, and that's D-I-X-I-T. And you can find there's a video series on YouTube, uh, the Geek and Sundry channel, 
where Will Wheaton plays it with uh, some of his friends. So if you just look up Geek and Sundry Dixit on YouTube, uh, you will get to see uh, you know Star Trek's Wesley Crusher show playing it with his friends not as wesley crusher but as will wheaton the actor who played uh, wesley crusher so go check out the game it's a nice uh, it's a nice short video well reasonably short video um about how to play the game so uh that's it so what other games if we're talking about games and art um, what other games are are games where the art is important on the cards uh, as opposed to where you're performing art we'll talk about performing art um, in games uh, towards the end, right? Right, well, that, that's the thing, I suppose, that there's lots, you know, we're talking about games and art this episode, and there are lots of different ways that games can relate to art. We've talked about we've talked about Dixit, obviously, where the art on the cards is the focus of the game and the gameplay. Um, there's lots of different ways that games will tie into art, and we'll talk about some of those um, perhaps as the, as the episode goes on. But I suppose another... Um, game that ties into that same theme, Don, of um, games where the card artwork is uh, as a focus, uh, collectible trading card games, um, you know, things like uh, Magic the Gathering, for example, and uh, right. other games of that ilk often put a huge amount of effort and uh, time into, into making the card artwork a real focus of um, the, that, that experience. And I was impressed uh, when I was working at Iron Crown and we were doing the Middle Earth collectible trading card game, how much art we would talk to the artists who, like the Brothers Hildebrandt or Naismith or, you know, any of the other well-myth, yeah, any of the other well-known artists who have done some Middle Earth art, um, that uh, they would submit, you know, maybe art that was already well-known from them or they would do art from us and... Some people would just collect the Middle Earth card game not to play the game, but just to have the art because the art for that game was fantastic. And there's a perfect example, Don. Um, you know, you take the Lord of the Rings um, collectible card game that uh, Iron Crown published all those years ago, um, and you know, fantastic game, although very complex, I suppose, to get into in some ways, um, but certainly absolutely beautiful art. And there's lots of different examples of games that tie into different properties, whether it be Lord of the Rings or Star Trek or Star Wars or Yu-Gi-Oh! or Pokemon or whatever else, where the cards and the art on the cards can be used as a, as a way to stimulate discussion about that particular theme or that particular um, property you know and that could be something useful if you're doing a particular type of um, you know art drawing or something along those lines you know using the cards I suppose to stimulate um, discussion or you know to um, form a, a reference point for for you know that 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 drawing and so on you know it's it's an interesting way of looking at things I suppose and of course good art acts as a hook for the mind so mm. even if you're not running a discussion like that, uh, you know, it, it allows the people who are playing the games to, uh, you know, kind of have their game latch on. Oh, here are the mechanisms on this card. Uh, so it's an interpretation between art and language or art and math or, or, or whatever that it's just some interesting associations happen. Um, and it's like I still remember the art from cards and Magic the Gathering back when I was playing it, you know, 12 years ago that... You know, I, that art hasn't meant anything to me in 
you know, quite some time because I'm not playing the game anymore. Mm. But, you know, when designing other games or talking with people about magic, I will sometimes refer to them by the picture, not remembering even the name of the game. And they go, oh, yeah, I know that card. Yeah. Um, so that's pretty cool. So, Don, moving from car, uh, games where the, I suppose the focus of the art is on the cards, what about games where the art... Um, you know, is, is on the board or, or is present in the game that that that, that visual um, aspect of the game is so, so strong. Uh, right. Can you think of any games that tie into that? Yeah, there, there are quite a few. In fact, I'm going to go into the digital realms now. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, there's a game called uh, Civ World or Civ, uh, maybe Civilization World on Facebook where uh, one of the puzzles that you can do over time is you will be trying to it's one of those, the art is all broken up into squares, and you're trying to help reassemble it as you have your moves and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And they use classical illustrations. And I was with my wife at a, you know, uh, I think it's a McAllister's Pantry or one of the local chains of, uh, of stores, or, I mean of restaurants here. And they had on the wall one of the pieces of art that's famous and I said, "Hey, Connie, look, it's, it's the game." And she's like, "Yes." And we were, you know, looking around to see if there was any art, other art that was, you know, from this game, which is kind of silly because I'm sure that they had their art picked out well before, <laughs> well before we were playing this Civ uh, World on uh, on Facebook. Um, but uh, you know, puzzles, of course, are another excellent way to find good art and and have it available for kids to be able to focus on it and they'll notice smaller details about famous artwork that has been turned into puzzles mm. and and they'll have a much greater appreciation for that piece of art than they would have if they just oh look flipping through a page in a book and they see a picture of maybe the mona lisa where um on the other hand if they're putting the uh, puzzle together they're like oh wait there's a road in the background or there are hills there or yes the smile here's how the smile is built yeah, uh, that there's a, there's a real tactile aspect to it, and I, and studies you know um, demonstrate that that when actions are linked to ideas and words and so forth, you know that idea of not just listening to a presentation but reading the words, writing it down yourself, that whole act of of transferring you know verbal auditory cue into a physical act of writing helps it become internalized helps that helps you retain that information um and and that whole tactile aspect of building that the, the puzzle i suppose allows the kids to, to interact with what it is you're talking about a more tactile that t- more tactile level so if you're talking about the mona lisa as you, as you just were you know that that putting together a puzzle on the mona lisa um you know is, is going to be helping you know those kids actually you know they're physically tactilely putting the pieces down linking them together and so on and that that uh, helps them bring that whole into focus as you said and, and really helps lock it into their minds i think a little bit clearer right and the search for and finding of other pieces that will connect to those probably does you know that even more so mm-hmm. i mean it, it you know magnifies the the other elements of it so you know i don't do puzzles a lot anymore but i remember when i was a kid my mother and i used to sit down and we would do puzzles while watching tv or you know on long winter days when uh, it was just too bitter cold to go outside you know we'd have cocoa and puzzles (laughs) so what a a wonderful way to while away a winter's a bleak winter's day exactly 
Um, but there are other games uh, that where the art is, you know, part of the purpose of the game, as opposed to a tool that are simply is simply used to uh, as a communication mechanism. And if um, for this, I'm talking about uh, you know games like Pastiche or um, uh, the Road to Canterbury. Actually, I guess that's a, that's that's kind of different, where it's more of the setting for the game. Hmm. Uh, but I'm, I'm looking at this list. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. For this, we're talking about games like Pastiche or Fresco, yeah. where in, over the course of the game, players are mimicking the mixing of paints and the creation of the art. And these games, uh, the mechanisms are pretty different. Do you want to talk about Fresco? Um, yeah, sure. Players are um, bidding on different pigments and then mixing those pigments um, and trying then to spend their pigments to paint parts of a fresco. Um, and, and the board is the, 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 the fresco. And as you place the tiles on the board, so the fresco becomes more and more complete. And so players are really competing to spend the pigments to you know build the, the build that that fresco and the players that build more more of the fresco than the other the players are going to be the winner so um, right. yeah that's really how the game functions in its most basic sense um, but as you said don it's it, you know that whole trading of pigments that that linking of um, you know paints with with you know particular colors and, and even the swapping of particular pigments for other pigments you know the mixing of primary colors to make um, secondary or tertiary colours or whatever else is, um, you know that that you know, it's a really interesting um, game for that reason, in my view. Right, and uh, the uh, I keep forgetting the name of the game. And Fresco also has a a worker placement game, and this is the kind of thing that's going to help with executive decision making skills, mm-hmm. where it's like I only have so many decisions that I can make, and everybody else is trying to make them at the same time, so I have to figure out what's optimal for me before the other players claim it. Uh, you know, so it's oh, what order do I need to decide that I'm doing things in? Uh, and so it's got a very rich gaming experience. Now, I would say it's not for younger kids, of course. No. Um, but that brings us to pastiche, which is for a slightly younger age group. I would say anyone age eight or older would be able to play pastiche, maybe not teach themselves. But with pastiche, you have tiles that you're playing down, and based on how you play them, it's going to create colors that um, that you can grab into your hand, and then you can say, trade in some of these colors for other higher mixed colors, and then when you have the right colors, you can say, hey, I am creating one of these paintings that's out available to be worked on um, or that, that I've got in my hand. And you get bonuses for creating multiple paintings by the same artists. So they're teaching real-world paintings from, like, real art galleries. And there's a wide variety of them. And if you have the deluxe version, and I think right now they're really only selling the deluxe version, it comes with easels so that you get to display your art around you when, you're, when it's done. And it is... A game that teaches a little bit about color theory and helps players talk about, you know, well, what's gone into these paintings and talk about the artists that are there. And so, in theory, if you were running an art class about a specific artist, you could even make your own cards with your own color mix and, 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 you know, it may be more work than some people would want to do, but, you know, do a whole class on the works of Picasso or a whole class on the works of you know, Michelangelo or whomever. So, mm. yeah, look at this, and I think that uh, 
Pastiche is an excellent game for teaching art and color theory. So you talked before, or you mentioned a game before, Road to Canterbury, where, um, or Road to Canterbury, sorry, where the where the art is is a hugely um, or a very strong aspect of the game that that really ties the players into the theme of the game, and the theme of the game obviously um, is the uh, Chaucer's A Canterbury Tale, um, and the players. Uh, pardoners, am I correct in, in saying this, selling pardons to the different people going on their pilgrimage to Canterbury as they commit the various uh, sins and so forth. So, uh, And the artwork in this game um, is, is absolutely evocative of the theme and the, the time and so forth. Do you, do you want to talk a little bit about this game, Don? Yeah, um, and it, it's unique in that it's designed to be a three-player game specifically. Mm. So... Um, Two or three players can play this, and it is based off of an ancient piece of art. The uh, you know that was based on the Canterbury Tales, I believe. So it's got this you know round part in the center, which show showing all the different kinds of sins. And you are a pardoner who you get extra credit for pardoning people for doing sins. And of course, you know to pardon people for doing their sins, you have to encourage them to sin so that you can then pardon them and you know if, if one of them dies and you're there to help them uh you know renounce all their sins at the end then you're going to get extra points and things like that but the whole thing is centered around a real historical piece of artwork that is great especially if you're teaching you know a class on chaucer or if you're teaching a class on that period of art that mm-hmm. uh and either way, it's a great way to draw in this game and show off to people. And I find it's a lot of fun. And the guys um, from the Little Metal Dog Show did an ex- uh, voiced an excellent video where they're teaching you how to play this game. So, and he's sort of doing it as if you're a real partner, and, and he's teaching it. So, not only can you just read the rules and, and understand how to play it, there are other resources online that teach you how to play uh, The Road to Canterbury. And it's it's a fun little game that, uh, you know, sort of, if you don't mind, a, uh, a sort of dark look at religious history, um, a darkly humorous look at your religious history. It's, it's a good game to play. And as you said, I think the, art, the, the thing that strikes about this game is the artwork is... Um, the absolute centerpiece of the game and all of the action takes place around it. And that really forms a fantastic gateway into the time um, and into the theme of the game. And, and I think, you know, it's such a, you know, it'd be such a wonderful um, vehicle for exploring, um, you know, that particular time. Yeah, and it's all hundreds of years old, so it's just wonderful. Mm. And the other, another game that that um, actually reminds me of this in in a lot of ways is a game called Sienna, and um, Sienna is uh, designed by uh, Mario Papini, and is based on a an, an artwork or a fresco in the town of Sienna in Italy, um, painted by Ambrosio Lorenzetti. 
um, and the, uh, the 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 board of the game is actually an image of the fresco, um, and all of there's no other um, aspect to it. There's no grid overlaying it. There's no little places where you place your people. All of the action actually takes place on the the fresco. So again, you're as as the game progresses, you start off as peasants and you're selling your crops, and then eventually you become merchants and bankers and so forth. Um, as you go through from one side of the fresco to the other, because the fresco itself shows an image of, of the town, Siena, um, back when, when it was painted in the 1300s or whenever it was. Um, and so you start in the fields outside the town and then eventually move your, your workers inside the town. And, as you, you know, you're going up the ranks and so forth. It's, a, it's an absolutely... Um, it's a long game and it's not suitable to young kids, really. But it's, a, it's an absolutely wonderful use of a game um, as a medium for exploring an artwork or an idea. And it, it really is an, a very good experience um, to play at least once I think it, it's just a wonderful game um, but it's not for everybody it, it's a it's a very because of the, the 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 style of the game I suppose it can be a little bit difficult to get into but and it's a long game but um, a very good and a very interesting way of bringing that artwork to the absolute fore and I'd have to say that most really good games do an excellent job of tying the art, whatever that art is, to the theme of the game or that help, you know, enhance the feeling of the theme of the game. I mean, if you look at the Discworld Ankh-Morpork game, it has a lot of art by the Discworld artists that has the cards of characters and whatnot from the books. Mm. And so that's going to mean something to people who have read the books. And if you look at the Star Trek Catan game, which has a bunch of art that was drawn from you know, the movie eras of Star Trek, then it's going to mean something more to people who are fond of of Star Trek. So you're going to find a lot more connection to the game if uh, that game is put together well. But on the other hand, if you have bad art, uh, it can convince some people that the game is not that good. Which, you know, I'm a little more snobbish on that than some people because I have, you know, the, the history of art history and graphic design in my you know, educational path, so to speak. Hmm. So uh, I tend to be a little more picky about how my games actually look. So I'm an art snob. <laughs> uh, and I suppose we've talked about games that, um, that you know, have great art on them or that use art in different ways. What about games that get people to produce art? Uh, you can't go into this category without mentioning Draw Something, which was an iPad and actually I guess it was on a, you know the Android platform as well mm-hmm. that probably got more people, at least in the U.S. and I think worldwide, to pick up a stylus or use their fingers and draw something on a screen. And with this, basically all it is is it tells tells me I have a choice of three different things to draw and the harder ones that I choose to draw the more coins I'm going to get and the more coins I get uh, the more different colors I'm going to be able to purchase which makes actually some of the early drawings kind of tough to do if you don't have the right colors like I don't have brown how am I going to do this Um, but uh, and that's all the game is there's no really winning or losing except for I have a string a string of over a hundred uh, correct answers between me and and a few of my friends and that's a wonderful thing and you get the warm fuzzy feelings from it and 
um, you know, so that is the most basic, basic of drawing games. In fact, I made a Picasso file where I put a bunch of my different uh, draw something pictures. So if you're really interested in that, maybe Giles will put a link to that in the show notes. And you can see some of my horrible drawings from Draw Something. Well, not so horrible. <laughs> <laughs> well, some people had try- trouble guessing what I was talking about, so I don't know. Um, I get another classic in this in this area, I suppose, are games like uh, Pictionary. Yes, Pictionary, which I hate to know and because you know i was an artist and so drawing is something that i take serious and i hate having a time limit on how long i can draw uh but there are games on the other hand like telestrations where i know everybody is operating on a time limit so it does at the same exact time so i don't feel the stress so badly now uh you put telestrations here in the show notes so would you like to explain that to our listeners um, yeah, I believe Telestrations um, is the commercial version of the game. It's also, I believe, known as Eat Poop You Cat and plenty of other various names as well. But I think uh, the basic idea of the game is that uh, you begin with a, a sentence of some sort and then fold the paper, uh, or sorry, then pass that sentence on to the, to the player next to you who then draws um, basically what that sentence says. Um, and then fold the the um, the paper over so you can't see the sentence, and then pass the piece of paper onto the next player who looks at the drawing and writes down what they think is taking place in the drawing, and then folds the paper so that you can't see the drawing. You can only see the second sentence inspired by the drawing inspired by the first sentence, and then passes it to the next player, and that player then draws an image of that sentence and so it goes on as as the piece of paper is passed around or the multiple pieces of paper are passed around um you get a series of sentences guessing what was in the drawings which were drawings guessing what or, or draw drawn interpretation sorry of the sentence above them which was a guess of the drawing above that and so on and so on and it can end up in um very <laughs> in quite uproarious sort of laughter as you look through and and see the different ways people have interpreted your drawing or other people's drawings uh, or have drawn the various sentences and so forth and can be a lot of fun right and it's basically the art version of the old telephone game where they would just see somebody had a message at one end and you're trying to see how much it changes by the time it gets to the end of the line of people only this throws art into it which i think is a real you know a lot more fun and telestrations if you're looking into getting this game they have the eight person version but they also have the bigger party version of it which i think has 10 or 12 different pads in it so that you can have a much larger group of people playing it and and i recommend you get that one whether you think you're going to have a larger group playing it or not just so that you've got the extra pads so that if you wear out or destroy or whatever your other pads then then you've got the extra ones and the pads are all reusable it's all dry erase marker in this one yeah so that's a it's a really interesting game because people are um you know there's not just drawing also you're you're there's interpretation as well um, and you're drawing with a purpose. You know, you're trying to represent what has happened. You know, you know what what the person has written in the sentence above. And it can be a lot of fun. I played this in my class with um, the kids in my class who were you know, eight to ten year olds, and they've all had a blast playing it. And um, yeah, it, it's a lot of fun to play. So I would say that you know, in the basics. Oh, there's another game that that has to do with art, but it's 3D art. Uh, it's uh, Clausel. 
from yes. uh, North Star Games. And in this game, you're you know flipping out a card and uh, where you get to see what your choices are, and then from that you're going to be sculpting. Uh, whichever, uh, whatever it is that you've got, and you put it out, and people get to ask questions about your sculptor, uh, sculpture, and you don't want to them to guess what it is that you've got too soon. But if they don't ever guess what it is, then you're out of luck. And so you you don't want to be too precise in your sculpting, which is good because a lot of people like me might be sculpturally challenged. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, if it's too um, you know, if it's too hard to guess, then then you're hosed as well. So yeah. uh, it's it's kind of like uh, Dixit. We were talking about it earlier. Uh, kind of like which one? Yeah, it's kind of like Dixit. Um, only there's a, a little more to the sculpting and a little more to the question asking. So yeah. it's a it's a good communications game and a good deduction game as well. Uh, so we may mention it when we get to uh, get to deduction games. We haven't covered deduction already, have we? No, no. Okay, good. Um, so, um, yeah, uh, can you think of any non-two-dimensional art uh, classes or, I mean, uh, games that, that are worth talking about? Um, oh, I suppose um, something uh, like um, uh, Barbarossa is an older game by Klaus Teuber, which is um, very similar, or Klausel, I should say, is very similar to Barbarossa. Um, it's basically the same, the same, you know, thing. Cluzzle was inspired by Barbarossa. It's just Barbarossa was a little too fiddly, so they tried to make it more friendly. Yeah, streamline it for a family audience, I think. Um, yeah, I can't think of a, an awful lot of games. I suppose there are a few um, uh, commercial games that do involve sculpture elements to them. Um, I can't think of the name of the game that I've got in my head at the moment um, off the top of my head, but but it contains uh, trivia aspects of it, uh, acting aspects, um, you know, sounding out and guessing, also some sculpture and things like that. Um, so there, there there are a few games that tie into that, but but probably not as many as as these other games that we've talked about. There was an old game called Monster Squash and another one called Clayorama where you are using clay or play-doh to build monsters. Mm -hmm. And so if you've got wings on them, then your guy is going to be able to fly around. Or if you've got fangs, then, you know, you're going to be able to bite other monsters. Or, you know, spikes on your tail, you're going to do extra damage. And then basically you're just moving your giant play-doh monsters around the board uh, and smashing people. And the, the different games have different ways of deciding how powerful your monster is or what they can do. Um... But uh, so that was Monster, uh, uh, Monster Squash and Clayorama, two completely different games that uh, you know do the same thing. Basically, let's make monsters out of Play-Doh, woohoo! Uh, move <laughs> them around and then squash them. And so the big fun is the kids always love it when someone has to crush somebody else's monster and then their sculpture is no more. I suppose there's another um, a whole genre of games for which. Um, the art sort of hobby aspect is is extremely um, relevant or prevalent, and that's in um, tabletop miniatures gaming, where um, players are usually in these games, um, you know, playing armies of different sorts, 
and um, fighting out different battles. Um, th- there's a huge number of these games that range from, from very small sort of skirmish-style games where you have a couple of figures running around uh, trying to complete a, a scenario or a quest all the way through to larger games that simulate, you know, Battle of Waterloo or Agincourt or whatever else. Um, and, and, you know, fantasy, science fiction, you, you name it. But a, a big part of tabletop miniatures gaming is uh, the building of scenery, of um, the, the painting of the, the usually metal or plastic uh, figures that represent the men on the battlefield and so on. Uh, that's a huge, huge part of that particular um, type of gaming. And uh, if you've ever been to a game convention or, you know, seen these, you look up on the internet and have a look at the photos of some of the um, display tables at, at different conventions, and they are just amazing. The, the sort of thing that you would see in a museum when you walk, you know, walk in and see a, a replica of the, the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, and all of the tufts of grass and fences and so forth are there and all the little figures of men advancing across the battlefield. But these are actual games where people can move the men around and try out different strategies and you know roll dice to see who, who wins and loses and, and so on and there's many many different types of these games the most famous being the likes of Warhammer and Warhammer 40k uh, Flames of War all the way through to, to you know many many others but but the the painting the collecting the the, the painting of the figures the, the construction of scenery all of those um, are hobby aspects of that game genre that, that are really, really important. And, and you know, they really do tie into that art. You're painting, you know, you're, you're um, you know, it might be historical and you're researching the particular historical period to make sure the colours are right and, you know, you're painting these little sculptures of, of men, of soldiers and so forth. Um, that That whole, I suppose way of bringing art into a game is something we probably haven't talked about, Don, but is a huge portion of that particular um, branch of gaming. Right, and I think that it's tough to find games like that that are going to fit into either the educational mandate of a school or the, hey, look, we've got these at the library, because if you've got a painted up army of, you know, miniatures, then it's tough to uh, to have those out where little kids can access them without them getting broken or disappearing. Um, yeah, one thing I have tossed up is is having a uh, at lunch times and things like that having a a, a you know as, as a spin off of the games club that I run uh, the games um, yeah the games club that I run at lunch times is having a painting club where you know different kids can stay and, and paint uh, models you know that, that we have at the school with with paints that we have at the school with paintbrushes that we have at the school. Um, and then, you know, during the games club, have the opportunity to actually put those painted models into into practice, with the idea being that any model that's painted, you know, just goes back into the ranks of the school's you know, collection of miniatures. You know, we supply the miniatures, we supply the paints and so forth. But just as another way of getting the kids to, you know, interact not just with games but also be artistic and, and learn to paint and all those sorts of things as well. I've tossed around the, uh, the idea of doing that and there are some games that I would really, I think, would suit, um, you know, the, the simple rule sets, short playing time, small space, small number of miniatures, I think that would be really suitable. Um, one of those is A Song of Blades and Heroes, for example, um, is a is a sort of PDF um, game that you can you can pay for and download. Um, it's by Ganesha Games, I think. But yeah, Debellus Antiquitus uh, are I don't 
mm. even know how to pronounce that. Um, or hordes of the things is small skirmish numbers of, of guys. Yeah. Uh, Blood Bowl is a you know kind of part football, part rugby sort of game by the same people who do the Warhammer stuff. Yeah. So it's like, hey, you can make up your own team, or you can make up a team that you can play. Uh, you know, so yeah, you've got a lot of opportunities where you can can do this painting activity at things and as opposed to playing a game about art you're performing art so that you can then better play the game so yeah. hooray and that that visual appeal you know as, as i said before is a huge aspect of that that particular branch of gaming yep and of course if you've got an art class there's no reason you can't you know take out a game and talk to people about why they designed the components the way they did and why they used the art uh, they did or what art direction might have happened uh, and you know, allow the kids to uh, you know be inspired by the art that are in these games. So it's, it's a good opportunity to talk about even things like accessibility. We've talked about in previous episodes with things like uh, the colours that have been used. You know, people who suffer from a colour blindness and what what visual aspects of the game have been modified to accommodate for those needs and so on. So lots of different ways. All right. Well, I think. Um I'm pretty tapped out on this games and art thing. I don't really have much more to say. You brought up stuff I wasn't even thinking of. <laughs> As is my won't. No, it's, it's, uh, thanks for that, Don. I thought that was a, you know, background in, in graphic design art is something that's obviously very, you know, something you're very passionate about. So it's great to hear um, all the different games that you've used. There's a lot of different ones there that I hadn't considered and some that I hadn't heard of. So I'll be looking those up. Indeed. Well, I appreciate you having me on yet another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. I hope you're on every episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. Well, you know, as often as I can horn my way in, I'll be here. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. All right, well, that, that is uh, this episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that at schoolsandlibraries at gmail.com um, and let us know any feedback or questions or ideas for future episodes or whatever you want. We, we love any feedback that we can get. Um, and, yeah, until next time, this is Giles Pritchard. And Donald Dennis for Games in Schools and Libraries. Games in Schools and Libraries is kindly hosted by the Games for Educators website. You can find them at www.g4ed.com. You can subscribe to their newsletter, check out games through their game finder, and of course, it's the home of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. Drop by and post comments on the episodes. We love feedback. Games in Schools and Libraries is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. For a copy of this license, visit our webpage at the Games for Educators website.